If I were to ask most of you what you believe uh, concerning any number of things, uh, you probably wouldn't have a lot of trouble answering that if I just went down a list of topics. But if I were to ask you why you believe what you believe, uh, some of you would have some difficulty with that. And if I took that a step further and I ask you to defend your beliefs biblically, then that would present a challenge for most, depending on the topic. Maybe it's something you've studied, but perhaps it's something you haven't, or perhaps you haven't studied it in a good while. And so some of you uh, have struggled in the past with what you believe. In fact, I think that's going to be true for most older people. We've gone through periods of our lives where we thought we believed something, we sat down to study it, and in the process of studying, we began to learn and think and have to adjust and uh, even change our beliefs. Uh, so you have been challenged uh, you've, by other people, you have read books, uh, you have listened to lessons and sermons, you've debated with friends. I can remember a number of those kinds of debates with good friends over any given, any number of theological topics. Sometimes quite vigorous debates, friendly but intense, and uh, sometimes over a prolonged period of time, weeks, months, sometimes years. And so many of you have gone on a theological journey and a bit of a struggle to get where you are, and I think that's the way God wants it to be. And, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, it's part of what uh, presents a challenge if you haven't been through that, if you haven't been tested, if you haven't been pushed to, and asked what you believe and, and thought about why you believe it, then uh, uh, that's that's ahead of you. But for those who grew up in a particular, so for those who bl- grew up in a particular community of believers, in other words, those who were born in a Christian family in, into a particular church, grew up in that church. Uh, at, and did that on a regular basis, uh, this situation can be very different. And as kids, we believe what we're told, and we sing the songs, and we recite certain things, and we practice certain family traditions and, and traditions of the community, <clears throat> but we don't always ask questions, and we don't always give it a lot of thought. Now, that's not all bad. Um, in fact, much of it's good. Uh, This is the role of parents, this is the role of communities, this is the role of traditions, is to help pass along our beliefs to the next generation. This is why we have our children in church. This is why we teach them at home. This is why we provide a Christian education. All of those things go into this to prepare them for adulthood. As young children and teenagers, it is easy for us to assume um, uh, that they're, regarding young children and teenagers, it's easy for us to assume that they're getting it, and then suddenly something or someone uh, comes along to challenge their beliefs. And that's inevitable. That's what the world does. That could be the culture in general. <clears throat> Certainly it is always challenging our faith. Or it just could be a good friend, it could be a boyfriend or a girlfriend, or it could be college. And this could be a good thing, or 
not, as we will see. That has to do with how prepared we are when that challenge comes. If we have a firm foundation, if we've been instructed properly, if we have taken these things not just into our head but into our hearts, uh, it doesn't mean we'll be able to answer every question on the spot, but it does mean we will have a foundation uh, that we stand on, that we're not shaken by questions that come along and the attraction of the world and so forth because we will be well-grounded and rooted. So, again, in that situation, suddenly uh, perhaps you found yourself there in the past and, and or you will, you suddenly uh, have to defend your faith. I've had any number of calls from young people, usually older teenagers, young adults, Pastor Booth, um, what do we believe about, and then you just fill in the blank, or I need some help, I've been talking to a friend, or I've been talking to somebody and I'm getting asked questions and I realize I've grown up with this and I kind of know it, but I don't really know what to say. That's a, I'm, I really am thankful for those questions. But I want to urge parents today especially to do a better job at preparing them for that moment. You can't, it, it, you can't wait for that moment to then suddenly try to cram in a uh, theological education uh, in two weeks. So you're trying to do that plow work now, and, and uh, just like you are in any number of other subjects. And so before we can defend our faith, of course, it's essential that we understand what it is that we truly believe and why we believe it. I can't defend it if I don't know what it is, and I can't defend it if I don't know why I hold to it. So your family and your church, young people, have made deposits into your life. Again, by bringing you to church, family worship, teaching you the Bible, giving you education, all of that, those are deposits that have been made into you, and that will only take you so far. At some point, you're on your own. At some point, you get that insufficient funds notice. Um, and now it's up to you to put money in your bank, to put things into you so that you have something to withdraw. And so I'm reminded of a quote from Samuel, Samuel Rutherford. We have run out of money, so now we shall have to think. Um, so suddenly you're in a position to say, I have to not just believe what mom and dad believe, not just believe what my church has taught me, this needs to become my own. Most of, most of what we think and know, I've talked about this before, uh, we know because someone we trusted told us. If you think about it, almost, you know, the vast, vast majority of what you think you know, uh, you know it because somebody told you or you read it in a book or a teacher taught you or the pastor said it or your parents said it or your friends said it or you saw it on the news, or there's all kinds of ways we pick up information, but most of it is simply because somebody we trusted told us and we believed them. Or, in some cases, when we're not thinking, we just believed somebody. Whether, whether we should trust them or not is another question. So, uh, that, that which we've picked up, that which we've been given, is the money in the bank. And again, this only takes us so far... And now we have to discover for ourselves what we believe. It's easy to sit and listen to the preacher. Well, it's not always easy. 
And you should sit and listen to the preacher. Um, but, um, let's see, I lost my place here. Um, where did I go? Oh, there we are. If you do that, and you're just listening, and you sit here week after week, you're going to absorb some of that. If nothing else, by osmosis. Just by being in the presence of it, right? Repeating the creeds, singing the songs, doing the liturgy. That's the purpose of the liturgy, is to just inculcate it into you. Uh, It is likewise easy to do the same with your parents. But it is another thing altogether for those beliefs to become your own. It is apparent that many in our congregation, like most churches, have a deficit when it comes to knowledge of basic church doctrine. And this is true for many adults, therefore, it is automatically going to be true for our children. Children can't reach higher than their parents, uh, or at least it's very difficult to do so. And while knowledge, this is important, knowledge is not the same thing as understanding and wisdom. You cannot have wisdom without a lot of knowledge and understanding. Those go together. That's part of how we get wisdom. It's not the only way we get wisdom. We get wisdom through experience, through life, uh, through the Holy Spirit uh, guiding us and all those things. Uh, Wisdom comes from above, but it also comes through means. Now, over the next several weeks of Sunday school, and I'll mention I won't be here next week. I'll be out of town. Jason Modar will be teaching uh, but I'm, going to be, I'm beginning a series today in Sunday school where I'd like to do a bit of doctrinal overview, and then I want to help you be able to answer why you believe what you believe. Now, we're not going to go into great depth. This is not a seminary course. This is not intended to go into all the minutiae of doctrine, but to give you a framework, to give you an outline, if you will, Uh, because I want you to be able to help your children do the same and to do that before they turn 20. I want to start with our name, what what we'll do next week, the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, and I want to break that down from the broad to the local. What is a church? What are churches? What is a Christian church? Church. Uh, And where do we draw that line between Christian and non-Christian? Second, evangelical. What distinguishes evangelical Christians from others who have the name Christian? Reformed, we need to understand this historical term as it applies to our churches. And then communion, which is a particular gathering of churches, or what often is called a denomination, what is unique about our denomination. If someone asks you, well, what, what's the difference in the CREC and some other denomination? We should be able to answer that, basically. And then, of course, our own local church would be the, the more the finer-tuned and more local thing that we want to look at as well to see if there's any particular distinctives about our church. So doctrine matters. Doctrine is what? What does the word doctrine mean? Teaching. We all need to be taught. Taught what? It matters what we're taught. Matters what we believe. Because ideas have consequences. 
All of them do. Good consequences, bad consequences. So we need to know the teaching of who? Or what? The Scriptures. The Word of God. Jesus. We're His disciples. What is a disciple? A student. What do students do? They learn. They learn what's taught. That is our job. I mean, that we have a lot of other blessings and benefits, uh, the life in our community and all those things, the love for each other, the service. All of those are part of what he teaches us to do and how to live. But we need to know things. We need to be able to articulate those things. And the problem is we live in a culture where the church has laid down and rolled over and played dead. In some cases, it is dead. And that's why we're losing the culture. We don't know how to defend our faith. We don't know how to articulate our faith. We don't even know where to begin with that. So somebody sitting, I remember sitting in college class many years ago in an astronomy class, and I was a a bit of an older student compared to the others when I went back to school. And it was a three-hour class when we met, and so we'd always take a break. And I was very respectful of my teacher, actually became good friends with him, but he was an evolutionist, and I would challenge him in class in a respectful way by usually just asking questions that he couldn't answer. Uh, it, again, it wasn't confrontational. That's important. We learn how to be gracious and understand our, our, where we are and, and, and how to do things. But during the break, it was not uncommon for me to have uh, half a dozen other students come up and say, thank you for doing that. And I'd say, well, why, why aren't you doing that? Well, I, I don't, I don't, I'd be afraid to say anything. I'm afraid I'd get asked something I don't know. So they weren't confident enough in their faith to speak up. So they sat there and they held their faith. <clears throat> but you can see how then there were other students who were being influenced and moved uh, in a new direction. Uh, so um, doctrine matters. We are disciples or students of Jesus and his church. Uh, remember, I just taught a series in Sunday school on life and our communion. And real communion, again, is built on doctrinal tr- the doctrinal truths that we share. Sometimes people will say, why don't we just all get along? Why don't we tear down the walls of doctrine in, in the church? That's the problem, right? Couldn't we all just get together if we got rid of doctrine? We could have a big kumbaya uh, hug and just love everybody, right? No. Uh, because... Love is built on truth. The Bible itself tells us what love is. And love is not the absence of truth. And, and so we can't tear down the walls of doctrine. Doctrine is not the problem. Doctrine is one of the things we have in common. And so the Bible has much to say about the importance of this. And I'm just going to cite a few examples here. 1 Timothy 4.6, if... You instruct the brethren, Paul writes to Timothy, if you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister or servant of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine which you have carefully followed. That's what the Bible says. That's the instruction given from Paul to Timothy. Again in 2 Timothy 2.2, And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses... Commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others. So this is that generational. We're passing the truth down 
the faithful truth from generation to generation. 2 Timothy 2.15, Be diligent to present yourself approved approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing or handling the word of truth. 2 Timothy 3, 16-17, you know, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for what? Doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete or mature. Isn't that what we're trying to become, is mature, Christ-like, ourselves, and then also our children? Thoroughly equipped for every good work. So what do you need to be equipped for every good work. The Word of God. Period. It is sufficient, it is necessary and sufficient to equip you for every good work. Acts 2:42, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. In the Apostles' Doctrine. Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, And he gave some to be apostles and some prophets. I believe that's reference to the Bible, the Old and New Testaments. Some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, that's you, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, which the word perfect means mature, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children, immature, tossed to and fro and carried about by what? Every wind of doctrine, teaching. There's all kinds of teaching out there. By the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes the growth or maturity of the whole body of itself in love. That's a packed passage. I've preached on this before, but... So the church is here to teach you so that you can be mature, so that you cannot be children, so that you can teach your children not to be children, and so forth. So that you recognize, as I've said many times, everybody's trying to sell you something. Everybody, put it another way, everybody's trying to give you some doctrine. And if you don't know what your doctrine is, and you don't know why you hold to it, and you can't defend it, and they come along with their doctrine, and they dress it all up and put flowers on it, Um, it can look pretty attractive, and you go, well, I don't know. Why do you think the woke movement is happening so strongly in so-called evangelical churches? Well, it sounds okay to me. Looks pretty good to me. There's no ability to do critical analysis, to think about it, or to understand what the Bible actually says about these same subjects. And so we're vulnerable, and so we get tossed. And that's why suddenly there's this big pendulum swing in the culture, and Christians are jumping on board without, without a thought. <clears throat> Hebrews 5, 12 through 14, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God, 
And this is an interesting passage um, at a number of levels. One is what he just got talking about was Melchizedek. Melchizedek, of course, is an obscure figure in the Old Testament. He's mentioned twice. Then he's mentioned again in Hebrews and goes into more detail. But the author of Hebrews is saying to these people, you know, I'd like to talk to you about Melchizedek, but I can't because you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk, 1 Peter 2 says, like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word that by it, thereby, by it you may grow. Paraphrasing a little bit. If you're a baby, you ought to long for milk. But if you're 20 and you're still longing for milk, there's something wrong. And that's what he's saying here. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. You don't know your Bible. For he is a baby. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, those who are mature. That is, and this is critical, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. See, one of the problems we have is why every little movement that comes along, people jump on board, is they don't know the difference between good and evil. Looks good to me. Does it look good to God? That's the question, not whether it looks good to you. What does God say about it? I don't know. You see the problem? Only those who have exercised, the word here is a Greek word where we get our word gymnasium, who've had their senses worked out in the word of God on a regular basis, only those are able to know the difference between good and evil. That's a pretty powerful declaration. <clears throat> In the past, our congregation and other congregations I've pastored have worked at learning the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and I think we've fallen out from that. It takes some work. But then again, doesn't everything worth doing take some work? Hebrews 12:11 no discipline seems to be joyful in the moment but painful but rather in the end it produces the peaceful fruit of righteousness if we if you were to take one college course it would take some work to learn the subject you'd have to read some books study take net notes from the lectures study your notes write papers take exams to be tested to see if you had learned what was given in the course and then you would be given a grade. I'm fearful that not many of us are working at learning the basic tenets of our faith, much less diligently teaching them to our children. And I had a pastor many years ago speaking to a group of pastors who said, you know, the real task, men, is not just to teach your congregation. He said, I want to ask a question. How many faithful 100-year-old churches do you know? The real challenge is to get to the third generation. 
It's hard to see beyond that for any given man. But how do we get our faith transmitted to the second and the third generation? Then it's up to them to continue that, right? So it's easy for us to start to coast, to grow lazy, to grow weary in well-doing, and then we lose it. And so, adults, you can't teach what you don't know. And I would like to suggest your children should be able to defend their faith when they are teenagers. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up, and I'd probably add to that, and when you're having a fellowship meal together, or when people are at your house, In other words, all the time. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Why? So that you don't forget this. Oh, there it is. Look in the mirror. There it is. Look at the door. There it is. This is what we're doing. This is our job. This is our task. This is it. And if we fail to do this, then we're going to fail over and over at all kinds of other things. And so, in addition to the lessons I'll be teaching and um, learning the catechism, and I'm going to talk about the Westminster Shorter Catechism, is one great way of doing this. And, uh, And so, I want to encourage you to take up learning and teaching the Westminster Shorter Catechism at your house. Now, I like to make a note, because not everybody knows this, sometimes... And I was the same way. You hear the word catechism. People think, oh, that's Roman Catholic. Catholics have catechisms, but Protestants have had catechisms for hundreds and hundreds of years. Catechism is just a pedagogical method, a teaching method. It's simply a series of questions with answers. Who made you? Children's catechism. Answer, God. The smallest child can say that and learn that. What else did he make? All things. So we begin with the children's catechism, very simple. Then we move up, in our case, the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And then there's a Westminster Larger Catechism. It said, by the way, just to put us in our place, when you read the preface to the Westminster Shorter Catechism, it was written for those of lesser mind. Uh, but I still think that's the place to start. Um, so in the case of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the answers are drawn from the Bible. You say, well, aren't we just reading the Bible? We are reading the Bible. Somebody, a group of, of pastors and ministers sat down and spent years, and they put together this list of questions and, and basically said, what does the Bible, how does the Bible answer these questions? Let's put them in a concise place so that we can answer those and help memorize that and learn that. And so it's a, it's a systematic way of expressing what we believe the Bible says. Think of flashcards for learning your 
subtraction and multiplication and division, right? You just memorize it. Put the card up and then you give an answer. And by the way, you can order hard copies of the Westminster Confession. You can download the app. You can finally use a smartphone for something smart. You can get the Westminster Shorter, just, just search Westminster Shorter Catechism. There's a free app. It just has the questions and answers, so you always have it with you. You can review it and have it ready to go. <clears throat> um, fathers, here is a great place for you to take the lead in your home, both by example and by insistence and consistency. Now, I don't normally like to do this, but I think I would like to do this today. I want to close out today's introductory lesson by reading what I consider to be a very inspirational essay on the importance of the catechism. Written by a Presbyterian minister from the past, Benjamin Warfield, B.B. Warfield, and it's titled, Is the Shorter Catechism Worthwhile? The Shorter Catechism is perhaps not very easy to learn, and very certainly it will not teach itself. Its framers were less careful to make it easy than to make it good. As one of them, Lazarus Seaman, explained, they sought to set down in it not the knowledge the child has, but the knowledge the child ought to have. And they did not dream that anyone could expect it to teach itself. They committed it rather to faithful men who were zealous teachers of the truth to be, as the Scottish General Assembly put it in the act approving it, quote, a directory for catechizing such as are of weaker capacity as they sent out the larger catechism, quote, to be a directory for catechizing such as have made some proficiency in the knowledge of the grounds of religion or the reason for our faith. No doubt it requires some effort whether to teach or to learn the shorter catechism. It requires some effort whether to teach or to learn the grounds of any department of knowledge. Our children, some of them at least, groan over even the primary arithmetic and find sentence analysis a burden. Even the conquest of the art of reading has proved such a task that, quote, reading without tears is deemed an achievement. We think, nevertheless, that the acquisition of arithmetic, grammar, and reading is worth the pains it costs the teacher to teach and the pain it costs the learner to learn. Do we not think the acquisition of the grounds of religion worth some effort and even, if need be, some tears? But the grounds of religion must be taught and learned as truly as the grounds of anything else. Let us make no mistake here. Religion does not come of itself. It, all, it is always a matter of instruction. The emotions of the heart, in which many seem to think religion too exclusively to consist, ever follow the movements of the thought. Passion for service cannot take the place of passion for truth or safely outrun the acquisition of truth, for it is dreadfully possible to compass the sea and land, to make one proselyte, and when he is made, to find we have made him only a son of hell. 
This is why God establishes and extends His church by the ordinance of preaching. It is why we have Sunday schools and Bible classes. Nay, this is why God has grounded His church in revelation. God's revealed His truth, right? He does not content Himself with sending His Spirit into the world to turn men to Him. He sends His Word into the world as well. Because it is from knowledge of the truth and only from the knowledge of the truth that under the quickening influence of the Spirit, true religion can be born. It is not worth the pain, is it not worth the pains of the teacher to communicate the pain of the scholar to acquire this knowledge of the truth? How unhappy the expedient to withhold the truth and the truth under the guidance of which the religious nature must must function if it is to function aright that we may save ourselves these pains our pupils this pain an anecdote told by Dwight L. Moody will illustrate the value of the religious life of having been taught these forms of truth he was staying with a Scottish friend in London but suppose we let the narrator tell the story and he now quotes the story a young man had come to speak to Mr. Moody about religious things. He was in, in difficulty about a number of points, among the rest, about prayer and natural laws. What is prayer, he said. I can't tell, I can't tell you, uh, I can't tell what you mean by it. They were in the hall of a large London house, and before Moody could answer, a child's voice was heard singing on the stairs. It was out of a little girl of nine or ten, the daughter of their host. She came running down the stairs and paused as she saw strangers sitting in the hall. Come here, Jenny, her father said, and tell this gentleman, what is prayer? Jenny did not know what had been going on, but she quite understood that she was now called upon to say her catechism. So she drew herself up and folded her hands in front of her like a good little girl who was going to say her questions. And she said in her clear, childish voice, Prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to His will. In the name of Christ, with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of His mercies. Ah, that's the catechism, Moody said. Thank you, God, for the catechism. How many have had the occasion to thank God for the catechism? Did anyone ever know a really devout man who regretted having been taught the shorter catechism, even with tears in his youth? How its forms and sound sound words come reverberating back into the memory in moments of trial and suffering, of doubt and temptation, giving direction to religious aspirations, firmness to hesitating thought, guidance to stumbling feet, and adding to our religious meditations, and ever-increasing richness and depth of faith. The old, quote, the older I grow, said Thomas Carlyle in his old age, and I now stand on the brink of eternity. The more comes back to me the first sentence of the catechism, which I learned when a child, and the fuller and deeper its meaning becomes, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Robert Louis Stevenson, too, had learned this catechism when a child, and though he wandered far from the faith in which it would guide his feet, 
he could never escape from its influence, and he never lost his admiration, may we not even say his reverence for it. Mrs. Sellers, a shrewd, if kindly, observer, tells us in her delightful recollections that Stevenson bore with him to his dying day what she calls, quote, the indelible mark of the Shorter Catechism. And he himself shows how he esteemed it when he set over against one another what he calls the English and the Scottish Catechisms, the former, as he says, beginning by tritely inquiring, what is your name? The latter by striking at the very roots of, the, of life with what is the chief end of man and answering nobly, if obscurely, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. What is the indelible mark of the Shorter Catechism? We have the following bit of personal experience from a general officer of the United States Army. He was in a great western city at a time of intense excitement and violent rioting. The streets were overrun daily by a dangerous crowd. One day he observed approaching him a man of singularly combined calmness and firmness of appearance, whose very demeanor inspired confidence. So impressed was he with his bearing amid the surrounding uproar that when he had passed, he turned and looked back at him, only to find that the stranger had done the same. On observing his turning, the stranger at once came back to him and touching his chest with his forefinger, demanded, without preface, what is the chief end of man? On receiving the countersign, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Ah, he said, I knew you were a shorter catechism boy by your looks. Wow, that was just what I was thinking of you, was the rejoinder. It is worthwhile to be a shorter catechism boy. They grow to be men. And better than that, they are exceedingly apt to grow to be men of God. So apt that we cannot afford to have them miss the chance of it. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Amen. So we'll take up some of these in the weeks to come and uh, look forward to hopefully giving you some things that you can use for your own growth but also use in your home to help your children and understand this is really the mission. Uh, at least a big part of the mission. It's not the only part, but it is a very important part. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your church. We thank you for Christian parents and families. And we thank you, Lord, that you have instructed us and given us a mission, a mission to give you godly offspring. That's indeed why you made husband and wife one, so that we might fill the earth with your image bearers who love you and are faithful to you and honor you. And we ask now that you bless us and prepare us as we gather together to worship in Jesus' name. Amen.